our Old Testament reading you will find printed in your bulletin. This is a responsive reading from Psalms 65 and 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise awaits you, O our God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with and your carts The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy to sing. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. The gates of the abundance of your house, you give them drink from your river of life. And then the gospel reading from John chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain 
by himself. This is the word of the Lord. There's probably not a person in this room that does not know the story and that we read in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 this morning. If when you were coming in this morning, I would have confronted you and said, do you know about the feeding of the 5,000? You said, well, certainly. Known that for a long time. I I have a question for you. Why? Why did Jesus do this miracle? About every, every few weeks, I say this at the beginning of the sermon. It's my goal every week, whatever passage we're in, to teach it in such a way that you can go home, and if your wife's not here, you can say, well, let me tell you about John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. Or you can go home and tell your husband, if he's not here, let me tell you about the feeding of the 5,000. I know this passage. I can teach it now. Or you can go home to your children. Or somebody says, well, what did you hear in church yesterday? I'll be glad to tell you. It's from John chapter 6, and I'm going to tell you about the feeding of 5,000. But folks, I want to answer that question this morning. Why did he do this? There's so much more to this miracle than you can even imagine. And that's where we will begin this morning. But before we do, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us or we will not be taught. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. We hesitate to say that, Father, for that is an awesome privilege. It's an awesome title that you've given us, priest. When we have faith in Christ, when we're Christians, you've called each one of us to be priests for the world around us, to bring the world around us before you in prayer. You've answered our prayers in this place, Father, Sunday after Sunday. You've heard your priests. And it's not because we're good, because we're not. But in your grace, we've witnessed over and over again how you've answered our prayers. And this morning we pray again for little Gwendolyn Palshin. We thank you for her successful heart surgery and we pray that you would bring healing over the days, over the weeks, over the months. Father, we pray for David Mattingly that you'll continue to strengthen him. We thank you for Phil and Sally that are here this morning for Phil Halley. Oh, Father, we laugh with him, and we thank you for his joy, Sally's joy, and the testimony they are to all of us. We pray that you'll continue to restore him. For Eileen Wood, we pray for health. We pray the doctors would understand what has caused this and and come with a solution. We pray for Becky Guyswine. That you would give her comfort 
bless her, Father. Cause her to look forward to all that you have for her. We pray, Father, for Rachel Hart and Kathy Garrett as uh, they grieve the loss of their mothers. We pray for Bob Garrett. Bless the Garrett family and the losses they have suffered. We pray, Father, that there will be that strange joy that comes, a comfort that comes as you bring your omnipotent comfort to bear on these families. And now, Father, we pray that you would bless us as we open your word. Father, you know this is not just religious rhetoric on my part. I know that I cannot teach this, and you know that I know, in a way that will change people's hearts. No man that stands behind that desk has that power. But Father, I pray that when we leave here in a few minutes, we will know, all of us will know, that you have spoken. All of us will know something of this parable, something of this passage, and the power of it. Oh, Father, we're your children. And we're, this is a great story, Father. And we're asking you to tell us about it one more time. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, our title is The Extravagance of Christ. You probably don't put that, those two words together much. The Extravagance of Christ. What do we need to know about the context of this miracle before we come to the details of the miracle itself? Well, first, I want you to know that this is the only miracle of Jesus, except the resurrection. This is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. And you say, I say, I would ask you, well, how important is the resurrection? And you say, well, it's got to be in all four Gospels. Well, this is the only other miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. What's that say to us? We better underline this miracle and understand why it's the only one listed in all four. Secondly, there are significant antecedents to this miracle. Just prior to this, in chapter 5, we saw and heard Jesus make five audacious claims to deity. In the first claim, he asserted that he was one with the Father, that he was God along with the Father. And then he said this, look at your scripture sheet or in your Bibles at John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, if you say truly once, you say, listen up. If you say truly, truly, you're saying, I mean, really, listen up. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. He went on to say that by the power of his voice, the father raises the dead. And he said, that's what I do. 
by the power. Jesus said, I'm like the Father. I raise the dead by the power of my voice. Now, this is an important antecedent, a preface preface to the feeding of the 5,000. As he, as Jesus is repeating something, he had seen the Father do. You say, well, where did the Father feed all these people miraculously? Well, you go back when Israel was in the wilderness. Then there was no water. There was no food. And what did God do? Last week, Bryant preached on the water coming forth from the rock. Remember that? He gave Israel water. And then what did he do? He miraculously sent manna and quail. It was there every day, manna and quail for Israel. Well, Jesus is repeating an Old Testament miracle by his father. I learned, I saw my father do this, and now I'm doing it. This miracle reaches all the way back to Israel being miraculously fed by God in the wilderness. Thirdly, there are significant antecedents. Well, there are significant addendums to this miracle that Jesus puts before the disciples that we will see in the rest of the chapter. These addendums are powerful that reach down even to this very day at Christ's covenant church. What are these? You'll have to come back next week and find out. I will tell you this, that this chapter in John has 71 verses. 15 of those verses are about the feeding of, tell us the story, the feeding of 5,000. That leaves 56 verses, and all 56 verses we're going to learn relate directly to the feeding of the 5,000. Fourthly, this is not a spur-of-the-moment miracle brought on by some urgent need. These people aren't starving. This was a planned miracle. Look at John 6, verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test it, for he himself knew what he would do. We will see in a few minutes that this miracle actually took place toward the end of the afternoon. I think John begins his version by speaking about what happened before the crowd got there. They look up and they see this huge crowd coming. The popularity of Jesus was paramount at that time. He was at its apex. And he sees the crowd coming. And he says, how will we feed these people? They were in the boonies beyond the lake. Away from the main population, it's, it's similar to the wilderness in which Israel found itself. And Jesus says, how will we feed these people? And John says, Jesus was just testing us, for he himself knew what he would do. 
Fifthly, this fourth miracle, this is the fourth miracle that John records. It's been four miracles to this point in the book of John. This is a fourth one. It's remarkably like the first miracle. What's the first miracle? Jesus brings 120 gallons of wine to a wedding feast. And here, he brings food for 5,000 people. Now, it says 5,000 men. It says 5,000 men. If women and children were there, it could have been 7,000. 7,500. It could have been 10. We don't know. How many of us have put those? Have you ever put that together? The miracle of Jesus turning the water to wine, 120 gallons in the feeding of 5,000. What are we saying? This miracle is more than just a miracle in the moment. It's a sign, yes, a sign of who Jesus is. It's a miracle with an immense scope. It reaches far back into the past, and it reaches into the future. It has immeasurable height, width, and depth. With that understanding, I believe the miracle itself speaks to us of the extravagance, the just extravagance of God. Now, extravagance can have a detrimental meaning, excessive, indulgent, wasteful, generous to a fault, but it can also be very positive, a lavish generosity, an overabundant generosity, a luxurious generosity, a powerful generosity. That's the definition we will use this morning. And we will see, and I believe this is the intent of the parables, we will see the extravagance of God in Christ. First, I want you to see in this passage that Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. Now that morning, he sees the immense crowd converging. These are thousands of people. And, John, and Jesus turns to Philip. And he said, where are we to buy bread? Now get this. What if you're Philip? And Jesus turns to you and he said, there's thousands of people there, Philip. How are we going to feed them? And Philip's the businessman. He said it would take 200 denarii to buy bread, just bread. A day's wage was one denarii. Thus, it would take 200 days' wages just to buy the bread. Notice there's no mention of meat. It's just bread and just enough where everyone would have a little bite. Now, that was an unusual question to ask the disciples. They, I mean, when did Jesus, when he was saw a blind man, when did Jesus turn to the disciples and say, how are we going to make this blind man see? How are you going to make this blind man see? When did Jesus say when there was a paralytic? When did Jesus turn to the disciples and say, hey, what are we going to do to make this paralytic walk? But this time, 
with the feeding of thousands, he did ask. Then late in the afternoon, he asked at the beginning of the day, hey, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And then he comes back to that subject. The disciples come back to that subject later in the day. Listen to Luke 9, 12 and 13. It's there on your scripture sheet. This is Luke's version. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away. You know, they had thought about Jesus' question that morning, and they came back, We got a solution. We're not going to feed them. Just send them away so that they can go find a place to eat. Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in, remember the wilderness, a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. So he does it again. This time he comes out and just confronts them. You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. If you're standing there again, what if you're Philip? You're John. Here's 5,000 people. And Jesus says, hey, you want a solution to this? You give them something to eat. We've all had parties. Most of us have had parties. All of us have had parties of some shape or form at our house for 10 people, for 20 people, 50 people, maybe even 100 people, 200 people. It takes a lot of food. A lot of money, a lot of preparation. And Jesus looks to his disciples on the spur of the moment. Hey, I want you to feed 5,000 people right now, this afternoon. Folks, what's our first point? Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. This is not unusual. Just before he ascended into glory. We, we, sometimes our familiarity with Scripture, we're familiar with it, and we lose the wonder of it. We lose the extravagance of it, the hugeness of it. So Jesus, just before he ascends, in Matthew 28, 19, he's speaking to these disciples who just several days before had run away. They thought it was all over. In the face of evil, they ran. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, to these same men, go therefore and make disciples here in Jerusalem. No. Make disciples of all nations, the whole Roman Empire, every part of it. As far north as you can go, far south as you can, far east or west you can go. Go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. People, these men were fishermen, everyday Israelites. They weren't military leaders. They weren't brilliant theologians. They weren't scholars. They weren't powerful men of wealth. I mean, Jesus says, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you want to say, yeah, right. That's what they're going to. Jesus is extravagant in his commands. He does that with all of us. We try to weaken his commands. We try to 
make them symbolic, and they're not symbolic. Look at the commands in the gospel. Jesus comes to us and said, what do you love? What's first in your life? Is it money? Is it your wife, your husband, your children, your parents? Is it pleasure? Is it sex? Is it success? Is it power? Whatever is first, deny yourself. Love me first. Time after time, I've read the verse in the Gospels to someone sitting in my office uh, where Jesus said, love me more than you do your children. Love me more than you do your father or mother. Now, this proves the extravagance of the claim, of the extravagance of that command. Because time after time, you know, I've been speaking to a man or a woman that did not know that verse. And they looked at me and said, Jesus didn't say that. I was right here, he said that. I'm supposed to love him more than I love my children? Yes, that's right. That's not symbolic. He really means it. We're in the middle of a whole generation that have turned their children into idols. They bow down every day. He says, love me first. Whatever your treasure is. He goes on. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Well, I won't like my neighbor. He's got money or he doesn't have money. He's the wrong color or he's this or that. <laughs> Jesus makes no qualification. He says, love your neighbor. They're your neighbor. You love them. Period. And you say, I can't do that. Well, you can't follow Jesus then. It's just that plain. We want to do away with this. He says, love your enemy. I had a way of getting around that for years and years and years. And finally, Jesus said, John, I'm serious. Love your enemy. Bless those that curse you. That's what makes us different, these extreme, extravagant calls of Christ. Years ago, many of you know her. Then she, her name was Faye Chancellor. She had just graduated from Vanderbilt. She sat in my office. Faye was real quiet, timid, brilliant. She majored in some kind of mathematics. I said, Faye, what are you going to do? She did not hesitate. She said, God's called me to be a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. I, what do you say? I thought it, but I didn't say it. Yeah, sure he has. It took several years. She spent several years in, early on as a missionary in Africa. But it was always, God called me to be behind the Iron Curtain. She's now a missionary in Poland. And she went to Poland when she had to hide her identity. When it was behind the Iron Curtain, God opened up a ministry for her there. And she's been there for decades. That's what God does. It's extravagant. And don't you look at her and say, well, he doesn't call me to be a missionary behind. 
I'll tell you, you have in front of you in the New Testament the extravagant call of Christ in so many areas of our lives. Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. 5,000 people, you feed them. Secondly, Jesus is extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. Now mark this. And when he had given thanks, mark that, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. So John tells us there's a boy there, and he had five loaves and two fish. And you do know that Jesus didn't need those five loaves and two fish. He could just laughed and said, guys, we're going to do something much bigger than that. Let, let the boy have his lunch. I'll show you what I can do from nothing. He could have done that. But he didn't. Bring that boy here. Bring those loaves and bring his fish. Jesus was magnanimous with this boy's small gift. We read, and he gave thanks. Well, listen to how Luke records. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke them. He looks up to heaven and says, Father, thank you for this little boy's lunch. Sometimes looking at the call of heaven, we look at our feeble resources, feeble gifts, and we think, God is so huge and so great. He could, he could care zip about my two cents. Folks, he delights in our smallest gifts. By the way, barley bread was the cheapest bread. It was a poor man's bread. And he's extravagant with them. You would have thought 50 chariots of food had just been delivered by the way Jesus gave thanks. Bring me that boy's lunch. Folks, I've watched. It's been a joy for me to watch all that happens for this, for this church to meet here on Sunday morning. I mean, if it hadn't been for Tom Edwards working here <laughs> as, you know, walking in and saying, years, you know, long time before this church was ever born and walking in to Madonna and saying, you got anything I can do? You know, he swept floors. He fixed desks. He did all kinds of stuff, just small stuff. And look how Jesus used it. Men coming in here and setting up men and women, setting up chairs, I mean, for this to come off on Sunday morning, it involves a lot of people. A lot of small things go on to make this happen. We're getting ready. We're looking for, y'all, everybody knows this. We're looking for property. And the Lord's blessed and given us money. But it's going to take a lot of money. 
And some of us are sitting there and say, you know what? I can't toward a build. I could, the most I could give toward a building fund right now is $10 a week. Just remember what he did with the five loaves and two fish. You bring your 10 bucks. God will explode it. God will use it. He'll build a church. Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. He's extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. And finally, Jesus is extravagant in his provision. Hang on, folks. Hang on tight. Look at verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus explodes the two fish and five loaves into thousands and thousands of fish and loaves. Twelve baskets are left over. Each disciple carried a basketball. Look, how are we going to feed these people? And each disciple ends up with this huge basket full of loaves and fish left over. Notice, notice, he did not say what we would have said as Presbyterians from Scotland. Hey, just give a half a fish. To every person, every person limited to a half of fish. He goes out of his way as much as they wanted. And he forces the disciples to see the abundance. You don't think that 20 years later, the disciples who had not been martyred still alive thought about that and testified before that and said, you don't know what God's going to do. I didn't think, you know, how could he take this and feed all those people? And there were baskets. I was holding a basket full in the end. People, this is a wonderful picture of what God is like. Look at the universe. We've talked about this. It's not just an earth and moon and sun. It's not just a solar system. It's not just one vast Milky Way galaxy. Millions of galaxies. Thousands of light years apart. You look at the universe. You see the extravagance of God. Look at the earth, the Rockies, the Himalayas, the great ice caps of the North and South Pole, the vastness of the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Life teeming at the dark bottom of the ocean. Look at the tropical fish and great whales, the tiny shrimp. The earth shouts to us of the extravagance of God. Think of all the different cheeses, the breads, the meats, the vegetables, the fruits. Not just some paste in a tube that God gives us so that we can suck on the tube and have energy. It's not what God did. Thousands, thousands of foods, liquids, to be tasted by thousands of taste buds. The earth shouts to us of the extravagance of God. What did the psalmist say? It's there before you, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Why? Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget his extravagance. Well, do you like to have been there that day? I would have. But 
the feeding of the 5,000 pales in comparison to his greatest extravagance. The abundance that God has given us in creation costs him nothing. Christ's extravagance in feeding the 5,000 did not cost Jesus anything. He just commanded. It was done. But when he saved us, when he forgave our sins, his extravagance reached absurd extremities. For God so loved the world, the Father so loved the world, that he gave his only son. That's extravagance, folks. Would you give your son for the riffraff of this world? Jesus fed over 5,000 people that day. It was a powerful demonstration of his extravagance. But last Sunday, last Sunday, in this very church, in this very gym, in this very sanctuary, you came to a greater feast. You ate food from his table that was much more extravagant. Usually in our liturgy at CCRC, as we come to the Lord's table, we read from Isaiah 25, 9 through 6. And I want to take you back there in closing this morning. Look at Isaiah 25, 9 through 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain, and that mountain is Jerusalem, on the mountain on which Jerusalem dwells. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast all over all people, the veil that is spread all nations. And then he says what that means. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited on him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited on him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There will be a feast on this mountain. And the Lord will prepare the feast. In this feast, death will be destroyed. It will be a feast of salvation. Let me tell you, the feeding of the 5,000 did not destroy death. The feeding of the 5,000 was not a meal of salvation. So we read that from Isaiah, the prophecy. All right, fast forward. Jesus is in that upper room. He's at the Passover feast. It's the end of the Passover feast. And look what happens. Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it and gave it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 25. Do you understand? That's the meal. That's the feast that Isaiah, of which Isaiah wrote. And we say, man, I worked on this. I, you know, I said, I'd like to have been there with you. He says, Lazarus, come for I'd like to have been there that day and seen this magnificent feast for 5,000 people. They had to be talking about it for years later. But you have seen a great miracle. Good John 6 is not the fulfillment of Isaiah 25, 9 through 6. Feeding the 5,000 did not destroy death. It was not a meal of salvation. But last Sunday, you partook of the table of which Isaiah wrote. It's the richest food, the bread, the body of Christ, the wine, the blood of Christ for our salvation. And what we saw today in this miracle is paltry in comparison. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. One of the greatest preachers God gave his church over the last 2,000 years. We know him as a preacher. Great preacher. But what you don't know, didn't know probably, is that he was a hymn writer. He wrote many hymns. There's only one hymn by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in our hymn book. The title is, Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands. It's hymn number 427. He wrote this looking at the Lord's table. And that's why we're going to sing it this morning. Looking at the Lord's table, looking at the feast. It's much greater than the feeding of the 5,000 people. It destroys death. It's a meal. A feast of salvation. Let's sing 427, standing as we sing.
may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,